0: So have you seen Deadpool?
1: Yeah. Watched it actually a little late to the game. Watched it yesterday. It premiered on iTunes. Just yesterday. I, I watched it two days ago. Or two that, days ago. In the past couple of days <laughs> it was up. Yeah, you were the one that told me to check it out. I really wanted to see it in the theater. Just couldn't get stuff together to get out there. You know, it's hard with family and kids. Some of the theater seems like it's a million miles away.
0: Yeah, and it always feels slightly selfish to just, Yeah. bye kids, I'm going by myself. You always right. have to get a buddy which means you usually need two families to sync up their schedules. And if they don't, then you're not going to see it until it's on DVD. Right. And then usually
1: it takes me a couple of nights to break it up because by the time everybody's asleep and you start it, then it's late. And you're like, well, I'll finish it tomorrow. So you're yeah, watching the right. stages. It's, it's serialized. But uh, that one I sat down with and watched it with the wife and um, just hilarious. It reminded me a lot of Guardians of the Galaxy. It was kind of a romping good time.
0: Yeah. I didn't even put that together. The, uh, the guardians of the galaxy thing was so left field because it, it was a well told story, but it was legitimately funny mm-hmm. and yet strangely serious at the same time. And it, this, this fit that pretty much. Yeah. It, you can't, everything can't be apocalypse into the world. You know, yeah. sometimes it has to be just that guy's kind of cool and he's doing cool things. That's enough for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think this, this movie kind of went there with it. I mean, it's rated R. Not everyone's going to like the gratuitous violence and things. Yeah, it's pretty but racy it's fine. in a
1: lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, and Jenny was a little bothered with the violence. She's um uh, just didn't grow up watching a lot of movies and still doesn't watch a lot. Um, So things are very violent today. With all the green yeah, screens much. and the special effects, we just kind of expect it to be. I mean, it's unbelievable because there's no way anybody gets thrown like that and, and just gets up. Whether, yeah, and and yeah. it happens to whether you have superhero powers or not. They're, they're pretty much just hopping up after everything.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, even if you can, that's the, that's the one thing I always found strange about Deadpools, yeah. It, I don't care how fast you heal, it, if you're getting something through like the heart, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, h- how much longer are you going to last, yeah. uh, even if you're healing fast? Yeah, that's right. The baby hand thing was a little bit strange. <laughs> that was that, really funny. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and of course, that was my question in my head is, you know, is that going to grow back or how's that work? Yeah. And yeah, vulnerability is something they really should give. To, I guess they kind of give to all of them, but they don't say it. But like Spider-Man, he gets thrown around a lot, but it doesn't matter his powers. Yeah. You throw him into a wall and he ought to be unconscious, but he always hops yeah. up. So somehow they all have some kind of invulnerability. Yeah. I
0: mean, the the idea that he's as strong as a spider uh, you know, that's fine, but I think a spider yeah, exactly. would go out, would <laughs> Still kill unconscious. would not break his arms. <laughs> <You're
1: right>. Ow! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, Deadpool was really funny. Uh, uh, just great stuff. Uh, my favorite bit was the sidekick to Colossus, which I didn't know her. Uh, I mean, yeah. I don't keep up with the X-Men, but my guess is they made her up for the movie, and she was just kind of ridiculous, chewed gum, didn't say yeah. anything, rolled
0: her eyes. Like, she was just hilarious the whole time, I thought. Well, I watched I saw something about that. Two two things. I think it might be like a minor character somewhere. Maybe, Maybe it's, it's made minor. up. Yeah. But they needed somebody who was more juvenile than him so mm-hmm. that he's just the old guy who was sarcastic. <laughs> right. It even like when she calls him lame, he's like laughing but hiding disguising real shame or something <laughs> like, or real real sadness on the inside. Right. There's this there's this there's like a little sister thing going on there. Yes, yeah, uh, and and you're wondering what
1: her power is because most of the time she just kind of stands there, sullen, doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything. Only at the very end do you see that she is pretty powerful, actually.
0: Yeah, I thought the I thought the Colossus character was kind of weak. He's just kind of monologuing, walking around. You know, be a superhero. Like it's just. See, I thought it was <laughs> really funny because
1: in the X Men he's really strong. So in this he's just kind of a just.
0: He's, he's a just, do- he's kind oof.
1: of a, yeah, he's a goody two shoes.
0: Well, and I think they did say that is, that was on purpose as well. They, they needed a straight man. And he, he does it pretty well. But there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of monologuing about be a superhero. Don't do the evil thing. And I think that's because they have to because eventually he's going to be the antihero. He's going to be a good guy. Mm-hmm. They're not going to make him evil. So they added the love plot, which I don't remember much of, uh, to make it believable that that's why he's so desperate at first. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they toned back on the craziness that his character normally is. Yeah, because he starts out as a villain, right? In Spider-Man or something. Uh, he's in the one of the first X-Men, X-Men. in 1991 or so, yeah. But he, he's a villain. Yeah, he was considered like the villainous Spider-Man. He if the, Even the... That's why he's red. It looks sort mm-hmm. of Spider-Man-esque. And Spider-Man has a sort of a loud mouth on him. Mm-hmm. And that's what... The, they just kind of made that into a bad guy version. But he was so popular that they kept bringing him back. And then they kind of morphed him towards... He's just crazy. He's about himself. Yeah. And if he... Wants to kill somebody, he'll do it. He doesn't care about the superhero rule. But he's not really a bad guy anymore. No. Yeah. He's, he's in Avengers. He's, in, he's one of the new Avengers now. They've recast all that. All right. And there's, there's an Avenger setup where he's one of them. And it's, yeah, it does feel kind of strange. <laughs> no, I thought the movie was good. What, what's funny is they, have, they do have a lot of inside jokes in it. So at one point, Ryan Reynolds is describing himself, like how he yes. looks like. Cause, and he says, I, lo- I look like me crossed with a sharp a. That's actually an inside joke because in one of the first books that came out, th- he you never see his face for a long, long time. And he describes himself to someone. And in the comic in the early 90s, he says, or at some point, maybe it's later, he says, I look like Ryan Reynolds' cross with a sharp hay.
1: Really? I didn't know <laughs> yeah,
0: so that. Yes, he, he actually says the actor's <laughs> name. And now <laughs> the actor is playing Deadpool. Right. And yeah, it's sort of this, this little wink, wink. You know? you know, that happened with the...
1: Avengers reboot with Nick Fury that they drew him as Samuel L. Jackson way before he was in the movies. They kind of yes, drew yeah. it based on him and then they got to cast him as it, which is pretty
0: awesome. Well, he was a white guy for, yeah, for yes, decades. Yeah, When they rebooted, b- they
1: made him black. Yeah. yeah
0: they, they switched it knowing it was going to be him. Yeah. It is strange though, because it, it does feel slightly like the worlds are colliding because... Now Black Widow is drawn to look to look like Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. Now you know they're, they're, the Tony Stark character is drawn to look like yeah. uh, what's his name, and it just keeps evolving. Like the two worlds keep merging. Yeah, but it was good. I think the show, I thought it was good. I, again, I wasn't stupid enough to watch it with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Uh, not that you're stupid, but I mean, Thanks. in my case, the last time I, the last movie I watched with my wife was uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> it, not making that mistake again. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't oh, see that. Honey, I heard it was great,
1: and it won all those Academy Awards. But I still haven't seen it. Well,
0: it, it's a visual. I mean, it's a it's it basically defines dystopia. I mean, it, it's a fully realized world mm-hmm. of of dystopia, and it's all it's believable. And it's it's like a painting almost. It's so it's wow. so visual. That there's not there's not that much for dialogue actually in the movie. I thought my wife would kind of get lost in it for a while. <laughs> She's like. What's what's with the like? You'll you'll see this when you go see it, but there's a guy playing a guitar in the scene uh, as the chase crew to go get the the bad guys chasing the good girls, the good guys, and um, he's he's playing a guitar like music to, to accompany them, and it's just hilarious. And my wife's like, "What is going on? Why <laughs> is he doing this?" So, so if I was gonna offer Deadpool, she would have uh, punched me at some point. <laughs>
1: That's really funny. I, I think I'd quoted before that it's it's doing so well. I mean, it's becoming one of the number one R-rated movies ever. Maybe one of the R-rated comedies, but it, it's, it's it's made an
0: insane amount of money. I never would have thought that. I did not anticipate it being so well-received. I thought it would be kind of, you know, liked somewhat, but mm-hmm. um, really kind of the, the insiders. But again, no one knows Guardians of the Galaxy. And because it was Marvel, they went for it. Yeah, it's quite a collection of, of events and movies and characters. It's amazing. Well, it's almost at a, a teetering point though, because if they put out one clunker, yeah. you almost get the sense that everyone's going to be like, "Forget it, we're done." Like we trusted you. Yeah. Um, but they haven't. They haven't hit. They haven't missed yet. I think the
1: problem too is if they have like an Avengers Guardians of the Galaxy crossover, it's just going to be too much. That's always the mistake that they try to go too big, and then it's just it's you know way too many actors posturing and just too much gratuitous scenes that you just think this is just because they had to get everybody in the movie so it's always better to keep it simple
0: feels like the old super bowl halftime shows when like every celebrity Mm it was big yeah well they thought that about the avengers and then it didn't happen it didn't go like they pulled it off but it, it felt thick it felt like there was too many in the avengers almost but not quite yeah yeah so we're both working on some manuscripts yeah trying to get a a book out that's not our dissertation. Yeah, The, right. the soft <laughs> the sophomore slump, I suppose. <laughs> the fear of it. You did an edited book. I did an edited
1: uh, book. A Charles Waller.
0: Yeah, how did that go? Uh, what was that process?
1: It was good. You know, we, I started that probably the last year of of grad school. In the process, and and later I found a book that I'd read called Getting It Published, and in it mm. he based and this guy was a publisher for a while, and it's in, you know, about getting a academic work published. And he said, "Never under any circumstances do an edited collection of essays by various people." <laughs> and I'm like, "Uh oh,"
0: <laughs> but
1: his his point was, it's just really hard to get it out, and and it was because you're everyone contributing is basically going to get a, a free copy of the book. So, I mean, you never make much money at all from publishing academics any academic books anyway. But with this, uh, you really have
0: no leverage. So you're just kind of begging people. <laughs> yeah, you got like eight people and two editors. That's like half your audience. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs>
1: and, and then if they're late, you're like, um, can you try to get it in, please? Especially when they're more senior than you. You're kind of begging to to keep things going. So that took forever to get that. But um, it was interesting in that it was almost like a mall, a shopping mall. You need your anchor store. So and Ben Quash agreed to a chapter, and then David Ford was going to write the afterword, that kind of cemented it for the publisher. So the publisher yeah. wanted the anchor stores there because we were unknown quantities. So so David Ford is JCPenney. Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the softer yeah. side of Sears. <laughs> and you're the GNC. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much.
1: I'm the, uh, plus the guy's in the middle, the little, it just has the little uh, pop-up sale things, you know, the selling sunglasses. That's me.
0: That's right. <laughs> you're the you're the Yobi Yobi yogurt, yeah, uh, whatever yeah. that place try is. Try a sample.
1: Try a sample. <laughs> try How about, a sample. about the dots? Remember the dot, the yogurt dots or something? Ice cream oh dots? yeah, yeah. Dipping dots. So uh, no,
0: you're right though. I think I've heard horror stories of editing a volume, and you're just the plebe, and this uh, not not that the senior guy might send it to you late, but that he sends you something that was just kind of like eh, like it like this typos. And you don't know, do I just edit those typos or do you write them back and say, hey, you don't split infinitives, David Ford, you know, or something. (laughs) Not not that he did, but, you know.
1: Yeah, no, we didn't have that, actually. Everybody was – we had a few people drop out and we added uh, one or two towards the end. But uh, it all kind of worked out. It it did end up being kind of late to the publisher, but they were fine with it just corralling everybody. So it uh, ended up being, it could have been a lot worse. It went really well. I'm really proud of it, but I can see how it could be a real disaster trying to get that together. But the publisher was interested. It was Ashgate. Sarah Lloyd was terrific. And uh, we met her at SST, which is Society for the Study of Theology, which is the United Kingdom's um, Association of Theology Professors.
0: If AAR is Woodstock, SST is like Coachella for you guys. <laughs> it's like this. It's like the big side one, you know. Yeah,
1: no, and it's great, yeah. and I'd love to get back, but um, it's hard in the in the spring. Uh, it depends whether it falls on spring break and missing classes, and
0: unless you're Jason Felt, then you always yeah, get there with an eight million dollar <laughs> travel budget. <laughs>
1: yeah. But uh, no, I would love to go because it's very intimate. SST is uh, hundred, maybe hundred people, so you really mm. do get to see everybody. That's nice. Uh, so uh, the publisher was there, and we we kind of pitched it, and uh, she was interested. But then once we got kind of uh, David Ford and some big names have been quashed there, and we, we really had a working table of contents. But when it coalesced and we had agreements and signed, then it kind of all fell together, and then it was mostly just kind of staying on top of it.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, whenever I – Maybe try to explain it to a student or even just to anybody, a family member. The way I usually go at it is I say, you know, the publishing world is divided. On the one hand, you have the so-called academic publishers. And it's not that everything they publish is going to change the world and it's the best of the best. Sometimes they pass on something that would be great or they take one that doesn't do well. But it's the price point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I published my dissertation and I I do always joke that, you know, I think the, the original price point was like 90 or Maybe a hundred dollars <laughs> I do joke It's like my mom wouldn't even pay that to, to read my own book. you know <laughs> Everyone just always says, "Why do they charge that much and the simple answer is is that's a library will buy it yeah uh, they will have if it's a you're a good enough publisher, so what the publishers do in those cases is they publish a lot lot less of the book, maybe a thousand, but they'll charge more to make enough to stay afloat mm-hmm. versus a you know a a bigger run of books that'll charge thirty bucks for. So you do really have a division, and it can be hard. Like, which one are you going to go with? And I, I always, when I'm trying to help people think about it, I say, start there. Are you okay with no one reading it and it being on reserve at a bunch of libraries, or do you want this to be a, what they call a crossover? And you know, your mom would buy it on Kindle or something like this for thirty bucks. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not that one is academic, the other one is pop, though sometimes it is that that case, but. It's rather what level and what volume of audience are you trying to reach? I think is usually the first thing. And I, I found that's at least my couple of experiences. That's what publishers are asking. Who are you trying to write to? Yeah,
1: that's a major question. Who's the audience?
0: And I, I, at first I was unprepared and a couple of friends helped me with it. They said, you have to describe, is this only for the guild? Is this only for people that are, you know, experts? Or do you want, you know, they said, they said try to tell them in terms of uh, an education. So in my case, the book I'm working on now with Baker, I said, you know, I want to pitch this to a college freshman reading level and above, obviously. But I'm not writing something for everybody, for, you know, people who know nothing, but I'm trying to write it for an educated person, who, but a person that doesn't know any of the jargon. Mm-hmm. And it actually helped me frame the, the book, at least the subject, once I nailed down the audience because I knew then I was going to use shorter sentences, more simple phrases. I was going to explain everything along the way and it kind of rolled off from there.
1: Yeah, uh, when when you do a, a proposal, which is – and it's always great to meet the publisher in person. But eventually they're going to want to document three, five pages uh, of kind of describing what it is, table of contents and stuff. Uh, and they may have a form for that. But one of the bits is, is who's the audience. And I think typically academics, especially new to it, think, you know, that's the last thing and they don't think it really matters, but that's really the most important thing. Uh, the, and I was looking it up. It's Germano is the guy's name. Uh, William or Bill Germano uh, has two books. I have Getting It Published and then From Dissertation to Book. Mm-hmm. And in there, he describes really three markets. And one is is really like you're saying, the crossover market, which is uh, maybe N.T. Wright is in there or yeah. um, guy that's the New Testament guy that's so popular Scripting Jesus why my name's escaping me. Oh, is that Ehrman? Yeah, Ehrman, Ehrman, yeah, uh, so he's someone that you're gonna see at Barnes & Noble and uh, The second one is textbooks that that mm-hmm. which is just is the, the big money is there because you've got kind of a set audience for your You're gonna have thousands of people buy it at a set price And then the other one is more the academic frame, mm-hmm. which yeah, I mean three 500 copies is actually considered pretty good sales and so, yeah, yeah it's, it's mainly libraries. Germano also says that you really want a good title. You don't want yes. anything too clever because it's librarians ordering it, and they probably don't know anything about it. So, <laughs> right. it, so, and they're they're actually going to see it in a catalog or a listing, and they're going to see part of the title, and that's it. So, if you get really clever, like you know, the circus of hope and despair, librarians thinking, <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> but if it says, you know, Reformation theology, a new history, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, okay, we we need we need that. Right. Yeah.
0: Clever titles bug me the most. Yeah. Uh, you know.
1: And it's funny because everybody wants to do it. And in every article, a journal article is always clever, but they're not books.
0: Well, I think, I think it's, it might be some of the technology stuff because I was having a, a conversation today with the guy who's one of the editors for the, the page where I do my blog. And he was saying I, I was putting out a blog on Fridays called Great Book Fridays. And so it was a Great Book Friday colon and then it would list the title of the book. Mm hmm. And he, he, suggest, he said, "Look, for blogs, if you do anything scripted like that, it gets like astronomically fewer hits because they think that you're just like pre-processing something. You're just kind of re-rolling it out." He says, "Just you could, for, in this case, it was Boethius."
1: I read that. That was a, that was great, by the way.
0: Yeah. So, but I changed it into like something to do with like uh, your faith if you were in prison. Like like you you put a title. He said, well, what are you trying to do? I said, well, I'm trying to get people that don't read these types of books to think, hey, that might sound fun. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, you have to give them a title that Trojan horses it. because." So I think in the publishing book world, people like us are thinking that's what people want. The the quintessence of being and the, the idea of the lore of the English Reformation. It's like... Just say English Reformation. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fifteen hundred of this.
1: Well, and sometimes it's academics trying to be clever, and so you pick up a great quote. You know, the fire and the rose are one colon, and and so it just sounds really cool yeah. because it's this T. S. Eliot line, and and you're in the club if you recognize it. But yeah. the problem is, yeah, it doesn't tell you anything of the content. It doesn't signal anything.
0: Well, or it's the thing you learn in the book, and but you have to you have to think like a marketer. Mm -hmm. someone's got to see that on a either an amazon or something like this and go oh interesting and if it's already only for those who know what you're doing then yeah it goes way down but yeah it's funny in terms of the audience one of the other things i did for baker and it was pretty normal they actually asked for more of it was i went around to colleges and seminaries just throughout the country a wide variety because mine is a textbook it will be and I listed, I, f- I looked up catalogs and I listed all the books, or sorry, all the courses that might assign this book for their course. Hmm. And, it, and, you know, you have to think of it like this. The, the editor or the publisher, the person you're going to interact with might be a lower man on the totem pole. They have to go up to their boss. But then eventually that boss, the, the main boss, goes to a board and pitches it to guys who could care less if this is the hot shot that might change the world. They need to know, are we going to be alive next year yeah. <laughs> because we sold enough books to stay, stay afloat? And so what, what you do is you have to think like you're helping the publisher pitch it. And I think a lot of guys uh, and girls sort of, when they approach the publisher, they, ha- they feel like they have to demonstrate that they're an academic. And my, my publisher, when I was talking to him, uh, one of the guys at Baker, we were having lunch at AAR. He said, look, we already assume you got the academics. We see PhD on your resume. We wouldn't talk to you otherwise. Yeah. He says, what we needed now is, can you help us sell the book? Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's that's a thought I'd, I would never would have that's thought right. of it that way. But yeah. Yeah. Germano
1: talks about that. And he also says, they want to know that you can deliver because there's a lot of guys that promise and they never deliver a book or, or you know, just keep extending. So can you deliver something? Will it be respected Will it be readable by an audience that it's, that's wanting to read it? And yeah, can you help pitch it? Is it pitched to the right audience? So that's the bit. Like yeah. you're saying, is it written for, if it's for college students, is it written on their level? And is it, if it's a very specific monograph for certain scholars in the field, is it going to attract the librarians and others? Because yeah. let's face yeah. it, the specialists, I mean, that's 50 people in some areas, maybe, yeah. maybe 100. And
0: that's not enough to sell. And the, if their professors, they're not independently wealthy with mm-hmm. the money to, to buy $100 for a book. They're relying on their librarians yes. <laughs> to, to, to choose the right books. And I mean, my advisor in, at Cambridge, he would go to the Cambridge University Library. And of course, they have shelf after shelf after shelf of just new stuff that comes in every month. He would just stand there and, and just try to find something. I mean, if he saw something he didn't know was coming out, he'd grab it and go check it out but that's how he learns what's new and what's coming out. And you're right. You got to imagine you're one book on the shelf with 500 others at the least. <laughs> if someone is looked, you know, scholars looking around, they have to go, Oh, that looks like something I want to actually, that's in my field. But if it, you're right. If it's, if it's something obscure, sometimes you obscure yourself out of it, even with scholars. Yes. Yeah. So it's got to be applicable.
1: It's got to be a fresh reading. It's got to be Or or you're just a big name and everyone wants to know what you're going to say about Dostoevsky, something like that. Um, And and it's also about getting those endorsements on the back of the book, which is a major way I pick a book is I look on the back and, you know, if Rowan Williams says it's a good book, then it's a good book. So if if you're connected and you can get somebody to endorse it on the back, that's a huge deal.
0: No, you're right. I mean, there are all these jokes about certain people that are always on the back of every book. Mm -hmm. At some point, their endorsement is run a bit thin. I won't name names, Uh, but you're right. No, I, yeah. If you you don't know the person's name, you flip it over. Oh, okay. Those are, those are like people that I respect. And you know what? I'm not sure if this ever happened to you, but when I was going to Baker with my book, this is my, this would be my second book. And it's, it's a textbook and it's a, it's a big one. It has, you know, it could be the kind of thing that they want really, you know, well for a, a, a church history audience. And they asked me to, to go get three or four people of substance who have published a great deal to just simply write a note, not the back of the book yet, but to write a note saying, no, no, he'll deliver. Don't worry. He's not a bozo. (laughs) Yeah, You know, and they asked for those extra steps. recommendation
1: before they approved the project.
0: Yeah. Hmm. I think if I were five books in, you know, that kind of a thing, if, and some of them had done okay or even well, it would be a different story. But this being a second book, you know, it, it does, it's the same thing with a job. It comes down to okay, I see a good resume here, but is this person really of substance and quality, because it takes a lot of effort on everyone's part to put a book out. Yeah, it does. It's not just hitting print and binding it up. No, it's a big investment with a lot of people involved and, and renting the printing
1: press and, and, and editors. And, and, and you're right that it definitely goes up a food chain. I, I've noted, I've realized that, that in a way, the commissioning editor becomes your advocate. If they like it, if you convince them, yeah. they'll convince their people above them and then an editorial board. And then they also usually want external reviewers. So once everyone's agreed, this is a good project, then it gets green-lighted. still probably going to be another year till it's actually in paper. By the time it goes through, you get the manuscript, they send you back things and you you make changes and editorial changes and it actually shows up. So it's, it's a very surreal process. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that, that you, you think somehow they're the bad guy, but they're actually the commissioning editors, they need something to publish. So yeah, their nightmare they're, they're is nobody yeah. comes up. And and you see those guys at the American Academy of Religion, AAR, that they're just sitting there. But they need something to publish. And so they want you to pitch things. They're looking for new talent.
0: Yeah, I used to see them as like they're Rome and I'm the the Visigoths trying to scale their <laughs> right. development. Like, like that, that they were aggressively not wanting me to come up and talk to them. But, I mean, within reason, that that's exactly what they want. Yeah. And I I've actually had several sit-downs, several soft pitches. What do you think about this? And I've never had a publisher say no. I've never had a bad conversation. And, you know, I've, I've had friends where the publisher might say, you know what, that's probably not our world. You know, we're not doing that. Or something like that. But they want, that's their job. They have to find things. Yeah,
1: otherwise they don't have anything. Yeah, exactly. That's their business. It's The one thing I can't quite figure out is they, they do talk about finding the right publisher. So its mm-hmm. it's sort of like a publisher that publishes in that field, but they don't have that exact book. So mm. a publisher that you know doesn't publish anything on Baltazar may be interested in it, yes. but probably not. But then if it's a publisher that has published, they may think, well, we've already got a book like this. We don't want competition. So it, yeah. it, it's a real fine art of trying to find a publisher that might want to publish something on aesthetics or Reformation history. Yeah. That's not something that they feel like in left field to their catalog.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. I, off in the distance, there's a third book. Uh, a friend of mine has a series with the publisher. It, it's, it's little short primers or introductions to things. And he came to me and asked if I'd send a proposal in for a book after the one I'm on now. And what was interesting is the publisher's initial response was, well, we already have a book that's at least similar enough that we're not sure about that. Mm-hmm. And you would think, why? Just, just if it, the market's there, keep going. But that's not how they think. No. It, yeah. If it, but if they don't have something in X, Y, or Z, and they've really been looking for it, like right now, the big one is Bonhoeffer or, you know, some of these really hot topics. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of publishing houses that don't have something on whatever's, you know, out right now. And they're going, man, I wish we could really get a good book on this. But, you know, short of writing it themselves, which they're not going to do, they're waiting on you to come to them with an idea. Yeah. And so, yeah, part of it's knowing what the the house style, you might say, yeah, is of is, the publisher. Yeah. I mean, if you go to Erdman's with a book that would be better at Ashgate, they might turn you down nicely. They might not. Uh, they wouldn't turn you down rudely, of course. But but in the end, you know, you have to kind of, that's the savvy side that that's hard to, to think about. And I wouldn't say you and I are experts, but it's just what, what I've noticed is you have to know at what point to strike with an idea that they haven't seen before. 500 year anniversaries of X, Y, and Z help a uh, in deal. the history field. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's funny. The, the other thing that's newer and something I, I didn't anticipate is they're also very eager. They're not requiring it, but they're very eager for people to be involved in new media. So a hmm. lot of, you know, professor types are not on Twitter. They wouldn't really have a Facebook page sometimes. They're not hashtagging. They're not hashtagging. <laughs> you know, hashtag new part. Hashtag-, <laughs> hashtag LOL Bart, you know. <laughs> Um, uh, or, but they're also, you know, they're, it's not that they have to be real deep in these worlds, but you know, they might be a good author, but they're horrible on a radio interview and you know, they can't even like give an elevator talk about, uh, elevator speech rather about this is what the book is about and just be human. And there's a lot of lost marketing. Someone was telling me because, you know, they get a guy who's pretty good writer, writes a good book and he just freezes. He doesn't want to help get the book sold. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's a piece that folks can really jump into if they're a bit younger, because you can say, "Look, I'm working on Twitter. I'd be willing to do radio interviews. Uh, I'll stump the book as much as you want me to, and uh, we'll be a team to go out and sell it." Because I, I've heard stories that publishers are really excited about a book, and the the person submits the the manuscript, it gets approved, and then he or she moves on to the next thing, and just it's out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And the publishers don't always have lots of money to push your one book they don't and so it, it gets lost if you think they're going to have fly around for book
1: signings you got another thing coming you know yeah. the idea that they're going to throw parties and do things it's not going to happen no so
0: but but radio stuff you know, like softer forms and again if a, somebody has a blog or, or twitter and they have let's say they have a, you know a certain number of followers uh, not going to give a number but you know if if you sell a hundred more books because you press the flesh a little bit more, mm-hmm. they, they'll be excited about that. They know that you're in the game. Yeah. Uh, you're not just trying to get your name on a book. Yeah, that's right. Another thing, w- w-
1: talking to publishers at American Academy of Religion, which which is really a major reason people go to the conference. I didn't realize that, but you know, it, it's yeah. partly to hear some good papers given, and it's partly to connect with friends and colleagues and see what's going on, and it's also to meet with publishers and uh one of the publishers said well do you know how many your books sold and i said no and she said oh you definitely should find out you, you need to know that yeah and i thought yeah. that's really true so now i've gone back and asked like literally did it sell tens
0: well? of people tens, tens of, of people, people have bought
1: <laughs> five of them being well not my mom cuz they're too expensive but right. you know my aunt yeah. Uh, yeah, find out how many, and and was the publisher pleased? And then you can use that in your next pitch of being able to say, yeah. I have two books, and they both met or exceeded expectations, sold this many copies, and and that gives you credibility in terms of this guy can hopefully not lose us money at the publishing house." Yeah,
0: well, it's it's always an investment, right? It's so an investment, you're yeah. right. the The raw number is not the important thing. I mean, if N. T. Wright puts out a book that's expected to sell fifty thousand copies and it sells ten. Well, ten thousand copies for most publishers would be a win. Yeah. But they probably printed all fifty thousand copies, so they have forty thousand copies sitting somewhere. That's a, obviously an extreme analogy, but mm-hmm. you know, if if you had a f- a print run of of a thousand and eight hundred sold, well, eight hundred doesn't sound like a lot. Or let's go five hundred and a, a, you know three hundred fifty sold. But if the publisher only expected a hundred and you sold three fifty, they're going to be very happy about that. Yeah. They're they're gonna they're gonna point that out. Especially if the price points a hundred dollars. Yeah. No. Exactly. So you kind of have to, at one point, this was new to me. You have to think like a publisher, write like an academic, and then market yourself when the book is ready to come out. Like um Ooh, that's good. Like a promoter. Well, I'm very bad at this. I hate retweeting anything about myself. I don't want to like anything that people say things about me on Facebook. It just, I I always feel like Ron Burgundy. Like. Kind of a big deal. I hate that. <laughs> kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I hate it. And so and I'm, I think a lot of, I, you know, a lot of my colleagues would feel the same way. They're like, I'm not retweeting about myself. You know, I'm just going to, I'm enjoying it for what it is. But, but you know, h- how else are people going to hear? If someone says, hey, this is a great book, you should buy it. You know, you have to be willing to say, thank you. Yes, other people see this, buy yeah, the book. You I'm know, proud of things. this book. I think you should read it. I think it's a great book. Yeah. Stand behind it. Yeah,
1: it, we'd still have that ivory tower bit of just thinking, well, the merit of the work will draw people to it. But it's never worked that way. Oh, never. oh please. Yeah, no, yeah. Exactly. Never. But we, we would like it. It would be so nice if we could just kind of pull back and let it all happen. But it just doesn't.
0: So, I mean, that's the equivalent of an actress or an actor moving to Hollywood and just like walking up and down the street hoping to be discovered. Yeah. Get a headshot, take it in, hand it in. This is my resume. Knock I'm on some this. doors. You know, yeah. Yeah, and and that's what you do. And
1: elevator speech is, is I think, key. If you can't, and I learned this with the the PhD dissertation, if you can't summarize what it's about, you've kind of got a problem. And we all start out the first year; it's like, well, it's sort of about an aesthetic that's this and that, and and that's normal <laughs> because we didn't know what we were doing. It was the first year when you're when you're writing something and researching. Flat out, Flat yeah, out. we knew nothing. But after you know, when when you're when you know the project, you really should
0: be able to do it in two or three sentences. I was just talking to a friend about that who's uh, in his PhD. Second year was when usually I I, was this, I'm not sure if this is true for you, but towards the end of my second year, I finally felt I had the elevator speech down. Right. And I I was literally saying the same thing to him. I said, I said, you feel tense because you know you can write, you know, you only have so much space, you can write anything, but you've got to find the synopsis that allows you to limit what you're going to actually say. Mm -hmm. I remember it was torturous because you're like, uh, it's the, <laughs> you got a whiteboard? Hold on, wait. <laughs> and you know, they're judging you.
1: They're like, what are you doing? Like, well, it's, a- <laughs> yeah. well, I'm looking at the the permutation of, <laughs> oh, dude, no, please. Yeah. stop. <laughs> and you know, the publishers must hate that that, you know, they can just see the new PhD guys coming up and, and giving them this long yeah. thing and
0: they're trying to be nice, but they're thinking, would you just tell me what it's about? I had a prank. I wanted to do at AAR. I think I remember telling you, I don't know if I told you about this actually, but it was early on, right when I finished. And I I, I didn't even have the dissertation contract yet. And I, this is back when I thought publishers were scary. And, you know, sometimes you do see those people that are going to every single booth, like, mm-hmm. hey, I got a book. Hey, I got a book. Yeah. And it's not that you judge them. It's just that on a certain level, it's, boy, I hope they land something. I hope somebody really wants it. And I had a prank where I wanted to get like a stack of like 5,000 blank sheets of paper and just have like single spaced wording on it. And I was going to walk around. <laughs> I was saying, I'm going to walk around, hey, do you want to see my book? And then like at one point I was going to stumble and trip and throw the hey, papers everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have those numbered. No. <laughs> well,
1: you know, the Simpsons did that. Did you – the one with uh, George Bush Sr. He wrote his memoirs and then Bart knocked the box into the fan and it just shredded up and he goes, no.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you telling me that, yeah. I our, yeah, I love yeah. Uh, maybe it was a primal memory of The Simpsons then, but that, that's really, what I was willing yeah. to do. I, I think his last page was,
1: because I had accomplished all of the goals in my first presidency, I, saw, I did not feel a need for a second, because, you know, he lost, but he was sort <laughs> yeah, of justifying the fact that he was glad he lost, because he got accomplished, yeah. in, and then it got tore up. Yeah, I, I, that's right, that does ring a bell, yeah, of, of walking around,
0: that would be a funny prank if you knew a publisher to to sort of drop the... Well, even just walking up with the physical manuscript, like, hey, hey, I got this thing, you know, here. Just slide across the table. <laughs> Have a box of crayons. Um,
1: I, th- I was thinking about editing some of it and having some crayons <laughs> or something weird.
0: Because the publishers do want you to come and they're nice, but they are guarded about the just pushy person. That's yeah. the only thing that you shouldn't be, is the... like I actually saw this once or twice over the years. Occasionally, you develop friendships with people that even if you're not publishing somewhere. And I was standing occasionally talking to so and so,
1: yeah, because they're there, they're bored, they're stuck there, they want to talk. So. Yeah,
0: and you get these people who make bee lines for them. Hey, look, Gosh. can you can you meet right now? Like they interrupt your conversation. Yeah. Like they they get that kind of New York aggressive kind of Wall Street thing uh-huh. going on, and that that's bad. Don't do that. But probably, I mean, the the best experiences I've had is months in advance. I shoot an email with just a, a one tag. Hey, I have a book on maybe this. Like one one sentence or two. Mm-hmm. Would you want to meet and talk? And I've never had anyone say flat out no. They always say, yeah, sure, let's do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're casting a wide net. I haven't written those books, mind you. Right, right, right. (laughs) I didn't write those books. But I've thought about (laughs) writing them. (laughs) I pitched the crap out of those books that have never been written. (laughs) That's
1: right. I tell students, and and I know it infuriates them, I'll say, you know what the secret is to writing a paper or a book? And they'll say, what, what? And I'll say, one word at a time. (laughs) Like, basically, (laughs) there is no secret. It's the same thing of, you know, how do I get... how do I get buff? Well, you go to the gym. So it's basically... Go to the gym, stop yeah. eating. Yeah. Plato, Thomas Hardy, all of them. They sat there with a blank sheet of paper and they wrote one word at a time. And that's that's pretty yeah. much it. And when you do it till you're done, you have a book. And they look at me, that's they're right. like very... They don't know how much I'm making fun of them. They're kind yeah. of flabbergasted, like, what? I'll tell them that writing their five-page paper isn't different from a book. It's just longer. Yeah, but It's the same thing of an yeah. introduction to conclusion. You just write for
0: three years. And they're like, What? Yeah. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you write a chapter, then you kinda of do research on the next chapter. I remember going back to edit the first chapter that I wrote, which it was like a year had passed. I didn't remember much of the specifics. I mean, I was like, that's a pretty good chapter. I hope I <laughs> <by>, my <laughs> citation <laughs> That was a good line. That's a good that's a good word yeah. in there. Or the citations, you know. I mean you can go you do at some point go back and, and check everything, but you're not gonna reread the things you're checking. Yeah. So you have, to be, you have to be a bit anal there about making sure that you don't leave yourself to be misconstrued or look sloppy because you don't want to be. But you can only keep a couple of weeks of information in your head at any one point, mm-hmm. right, when it comes to that level of specific writing. You know, the unter- other interesting thing with the dissertation in a
1: book, it partly reflects what people are reading at that time. Did you have that experience where you're reading a different book and you're like, I could use this? So partly yeah, when you read yeah. and you look at footnotes, you're thinking, oh, this guy just happened to read this at the same time and thought I could use this. So it's serendipity. Exactly right. No, I, that would be a good quote. I'm going to go <laughs> jam that in when it doesn't exactly. fit, exactly. you know? So can't remember the quotes from la- from two weeks ago, but I can remember this one because it's right in front of me.
0: My least favorite is the, the the scholar type who cites every foreign language possible, even if you're sure he doesn't read three or four of them. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, It's like, at one point, you know, there's a guy, like, citing Spanish, article, like, articles in Spanish. I'm like, you don't know Spanish at all. Like, you're the most British person I've ever met. You Like, how are you? Probably he was he was figuring it out, but still. You've been, you went to Mallorca one summer. That's it. <laughs> he vacations down in, you know, Portugal. Um, but it sounds cool. Yeah, no, so I, I think that's always the deal. I, I, I think it, it, you're right. I mean, I, maybe a way to wrap it up is to say my publisher said the exact same thing. There are probably untold numbers of great books that have not been written because the, the people just don't deliver. It's not that the book isn't pitched, though sometimes maybe that's the case. It's that they pitch something and then they don't think of a strategy for how to do a little bit each day or mm-hmm. a little bit each week or whatever it might be. And they sit in their rocket chairs late in life going, I always wanted to write a book on that. <laughs> you know, and it just doesn't happen. And... You know, it does take labor. It does take time out of your schedule. If it's not your full-time job, you got to do it on the off hours, which is my case. It is a platitude, but you know, the journey of a thousand steps, one one step at a time. You got to, you just have to get it done. Yeah,
1: we all get 24 hours, and at a certain point, you can't make excuses. We make choices to either do these things or not, and uh, it'd be great if we could just dream it and happen, but it doesn't. It, it's, yeah list up. So it's got to plug away. So when I look at a book now, I think, wow, I realize how much time somebody put into it, be it Harry Potter or whatever, academic or something. I always have a little respect of that person sat down. It's
0: kind of like the person at the
1: gym. Like that person's trying. They come four days a week, you know, and and hats off to them kind of thing. I'm
0: a lot less critical of the person who wrote a really big book. It's not the best in the world. and It's not my favorite. But no, you're right. I used to be a lot more hard on books when I didn't know how much effort it was to get one out. And even more so, the people who are very lucid and write big books and long books and that'll keep your attention the whole time and they can sell, you realize how much of an artistry that is to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty great. And let's encourage our listeners to
1: write some good reviews on iTunes. We're having a lot of good downloads, but want to keep growing. So, uh, iTunes reviews always help, and, of course, be in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter. I do want to say hello to all of our Denmark listeners. That's right. <laughs> That's right. U.S. number yeah. one and then Denmark number two. All that money we spent in the U.K., and they can't even be number two. Maybe
0: I clicked the wrong marketing button. I don't know, but we'll We'll see. <laughs> <laughs>